Hello, friends. It's time for the second hour of Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik, Moody Radio's Bible study across America. We're discussing questions about the Bible, God, and the spiritual life. I'm Michael Rydelnik. I'm professor of Jewish studies and Bible at Moody Bible Institute. I'm so glad to be with you today for a special pre-recorded Thanksgiving weekend edition of Open Line all across Moody Radio. I know people are recovering from eating too much turkey. People are getting over all the pumpkin pie and maybe having some leftovers. But today, please don't call us while you recover. Uh, Instead, listen in because instead of the normal call-ins, what we're going to do today is we are having Moody students. They came in before Thanksgiving They're asking their questions. So Moody Bible Institute students are with me today. They are asking the questions they have about the Bible, God, and the spiritual life. I'm sure it's questions that all of you listening have had, and so they're the ones going to ask it. So don't call in today. But if you want to, you can write. Just go to our website, openlineradio.org. There's a link there that says, Ask Michael a Question. Click on that. You can post your question there, and in upcoming weeks, Trish will put that in the mailbag, and we'll be sure to cover it uh, in the next few weeks. Let me tell you about our current resource. When I was a freshman at Moody Bible Institute, we were required as part of the curriculum to read Balancing the Christian Life by Charles Ryrie. It was a biblical, very wise approach to how to grow as a believer. It had a tremendous impact on my life. And when I had to decide on seminary, I chose to go to the school where Dr. Ryrie taught. I actually got to take two classes with him as professor. I still think this book is an excellent tool. It will help us all grow as believers and especially help you balance your walk with the Lord. It can be yours when you give a gift of any size to Open Line. We want to say thank you and send you a copy of Balancing the Christian Life. Call 888 888- 644-7122, or go to openlineradio.org. And remember, ask for Balancing the Christian Life. Uh, you're going to really appreciate this book. It's a classic. And now I want to welcome some students in. Uh, we are going to be taking your questions. And uh, I was just wondering, Trish, do you have a, a, a direction? We're going to start here with Kat. Uh, Kat, why don't you introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Kat. Um, I grew up in Maryland, and I am a sophomore studying Jewish studies. Oh, so that's why I knew your name, right? That's why. That's it. Uh, Kat also is not just a sophomore in Jewish studies. Uh, She is my teaching assistant. She's the one that records the grades and uh, does all sorts of assignments for me and is very helpful. And so uh, she's very where would I be without you? I wouldn't be able to teach. So You'd thank be you. Grading a lot of papers. Yeah, I'd be grading papers. That's true. So, and I still have to grade papers. Okay, let's go on. Uh, <laughs> what's your question, Kat? How can I help you? Okay, so um, in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel story, mm-hmm. God says, uh, let me just go to it. He says, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. And I'm wondering, why is that a bad thing, that nothing would be impossible for them? Um, And then I I have a follow-up, but I'll let you start with that one. Well, that's a really good question because unity 
can bring greater effectiveness, and that's the principle that's being taught there. It just depends on what you want to accomplish. Now, if God tells you, I want you to spread out over all the earth, and people say, nah, we're going to go settle here in the plain of Shinar, in the land of Babylon, and create a city built on rebellion against God, and we are all unified because we all speak the same language, and we all agree we're going to build a great city with a great tower to reach up to heaven, and we don't care what God told us to do, then that unity will make them effective at rebellion. And so unity is good, generally speaking, if it has a good ultimate end. But the ultimate end, the purpose of their unity, was to rebel against God, and so that's why God disrupted it. Okay, so that goes right into my follow-up, actually, which was, um, so when you say that they were rebelling and disobeying, Mm -hmm. when did God actually tell them to disperse? I know in Genesis 9-1, he says, be fruitful and multiply and Mm -hmm. fill the earth. Um, Did Fill the earth mean disperse? I don't know what it what it says in... Well, uh, God had sent them out to, uh, to, to uh, accomplish something for him. Uh, otherwise, he would not have scattered their languages so that they would scatter. So I, I have to presume that filling the earth meant scattering out over the whole world, uh, to not just fill Babylon with uh, with their their descendants, but rather to spread out over the whole earth. And so when they say, no, we we don't want to do that. We want to just stay here and build our city. That's when, when it became rebellious against God. And of course, this is a really crucial passage because a lot of people want to say uh, it's a ba- Babylonian ziggurat. There's nothing in the text that would tell us it's a Babylonian ziggurat. It has nothing to do with pagan worship. It has to do with rebellion against God. And one of the things you'll see in scriptures, whenever people are moving eastward in the early chapters of Genesis, they're moving into the areas of rebellion, and they go to Babylon. And of course, that's how it starts here in Genesis uh, 11. It says that the people migrated eastward, and they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. And so that becomes, again, uh, just as Lot looked eastward to Sodom, and he was in rebellion, uh, just as Adam and Eve, after they rebelled, were kicked out of the garden, and the cherub was placed east of Eden because they were moving eastward in rebellion. Uh, uh, also, Cain, after he was supposed to uh, wander the earth, instead he settled eastward and built a city. And so moving eastward just is sort of a uh, a biblical idiom in these early chapters of Genesis of rebellion. And so uh, that's why we know they're rebelling here. And of course, Babylon, um, some versions call it Babel, but it's the Hebrew word Babel, which is the word that's used for Babylon throughout the whole Bible. And Babylon becomes the epicenter of rebellion against God. And so he scatters them. And then in chapter 12, what does God do? He takes Abram from the land of Ur of the Chaldees, which is in Babylon, Babylonia, and he pulls him and brings him westward to the promised land. And then from Genesis 11 and 12 on, you've got this constant tension in Scripture between Zion and, and, and Babylon, Zion being the, the promised place, and, or Israel, and then Jerusalem, 
and then you have uh, rebellion in Babylon. And of course, what happens when Israel rebels? God disciplines them by exiling them to Babylon. And at the end of the Bible, it all culminates in Revelation 17 and 18, where Babylon is destroyed, and then Revelation 21 and 22, the new Jerusalem is established. And so you've got this tension of Babylon versus Jerusalem throughout the Bible. Okay? Yep, thank okay. you. Sure. Uh, we're going to go next to Summer. Uh, introduce yourself for us. Hello, my name is Summer, and I'm currently in my last semester as a student at Moody Bible Institute. Um, I'm majoring in biblical studies, and I'm originally from Yorkville, Illinois. Oh, well, I'm glad you're here. And you're you're not in Jewish studies, but you're in my Daniel Revelation class, and that's how we know each other, right? I am, yes. Yeah, I'm so glad class. you're here. How, how can I help you today? Um, so my question is, um, how do you discern in your life whether the things that are happening are God's discipline or God trying to get your attention um, versus just general things as a result of living in a fallen world um, while also avoiding having the sort of retribution theology that Job's friends have of where everything that happens to you is a result of your own doing? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question also because we tend to always think that God's up there with that lightning bolt getting us, right? And... Uh, the, the thing I would say about discipline is the word, it comes the same word as disciple, hmm. which means to teach. And so uh, when we look at Hebrews chapter 12, I think a lot of us always assume that everything that's happening in our life is corrective, like there's a problem. But that's not necessarily the case. And you look at Hebrews 12 where it says, uh, here we go, do not take the Lord's discipline. Uh, here, I'll start the verse before. Hebrews 12, 5. You have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons and daughters, children. Mm -hmm. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or faint when you are reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines one he loves and punishes every son he receives. Endure suffering as a discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had natural fathers discipline us and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them, but he does it for our benefit so that we can share in his holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the fruit of peace and righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, here's the thing. Too often we think all discipline, all instruction, let's call it that, from the Lord is corrective. But sometimes the things that we're enduring is not because there's something wrong, but it's preventative. And so... I think everything is discipline whenever we endure something, but it's not punitive. It's not to punish us or to make us pay for what we did wrong. Sometimes it's, okay, you need to learn from this so it becomes corrective. That's part of discipline. It's always corrective to, to make us learn better how to obey him. But sometimes we endure suffering and it's not because we've done anything wrong, but we're learning it's 
preventative so that in the future we have learned a lesson so that when we are tempted to sin, we won't because we've been trained by the by by this by this correct by this preventative uh, situation that we've been in. And what it says here is that we are trained by it. I, I love that idea uh, that uh, the later on, however, it yields the fruits of peace and righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so uh, we should never be like Job's friends because Job's friends thought everything that happened to Job was punitive, you know, to get, to get him. But none of it was like that. It was always corrective. Uh, and Job didn't even know that he needed correction. But he had to learn that God was not answerable to him, which is an area of correction. But nevertheless, uh, when we endure suffering, we always have to say, what can we learn from this? And we can learn to walk closer to the Lord, to trust him, all sorts of things. Not necessarily because there was something wrong in our life, but so that things can go more correctly in our life when we face other challenges. Is that helpful? Yeah, it's very helpful. Oh. Thank you. Okay, good. Well, you know, uh, let's see. I'm going to see if I can answer your question. Uh, we only have a minute. Uh, I'm not going to take another question. We're going to hold on to you. Uh, so you hang on there. And when we come back, uh, we'll be taking more questions from Moody students on this special Thanksgiving weekend edition pre-recorded of Open Line. Thanks for these students being with me. And thank, thank you for listening as well. We're going to be right back right here on Open Line with Michael Wright Elnick. Each weekend on Open Line with me, Dr. Michael Radelnik, we study the scriptures around our radio kitchen table. You can become a kitchen table partner through your monthly support of Open Line. Your gifts help me to provide biblical answers to questions that many believers have about the Savior, the scriptures, and the spiritual life. Along with other partners, you're helping people receive guidance from God's Word. Become a kitchen table partner today. Call 888-644-7122 or go to openlineradio.org. Welcome back to this special pre-recorded Thanksgiving weekend edition of Open Line with Moody Bible Institute students. You know, one of the frequent questions I get on this Bible study across America is how should followers of Jesus think about the Jewish people? Are they still God's chosen people? Does God have a plan for the Jewish people? Chosen People Ministries wants to help out all of us who are asking those questions by offering a book called Israel, the Jewish People, and Jesus. This book explains God's promises to the Jewish people and what they mean for us today. For your copy of Israel, the Jewish People, and Jesus, just go to our website, openlineradio.org, scroll down to the link that says A Free Gift from Chosen People Ministries, click on that, you'll be taken to a page where you can sign up for your own copy of Israel, the Jewish People, and Jesus. And we're going to turn back to more of our student questions right now. And Nate, why don't you introduce yourself? Hello, my name is Nate. I'm originally from Wheaton, Illinois, but I'm currently living in Horsham, England, and I am an elementary ed major, uh, sophomore. Okay. Okay, so um, I recently heard someone teach that Christians who habitually practice the sin of homosexuality will not be barred from heaven if their pastors teach them that homosexuality is not a sin. My question is, wouldn't the Holy Spirit reveal this to them? And how would you respond to that teacher? What scripture would you use? 
Oh, man. Uh, you know, one of the tough things in 1 Corinthians 6, it says, uh, the reason I can't read it is I was looking at 2 Corinthians. Here we go. 1 <laughs> Corinthians 6 uh, says this. It says, Don't you know, or don't be deceived, no sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or anyone practicing homosexuality, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. So it's pretty clear among the different sins that people who practice these things are not going to inherit the kingdom. But a lot of people stop there because it says in such and some of you used to be like this, or in the more classic, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, and the Spirit of our God. So I would say that people who had practiced homosexuality or any other sin uh, would not inherit the kingdom unless they put their trust in Jesus. And if they believe in Jesus, that he died for them and rose again, uh, then they will be forgiven no condemnation, and they will spend eternity with the Lord. The second issue comes up, well, what if they have areas where they fall, where then it doesn't matter what sin it is? Well, we confess our sins, and we're faithful and just. He is faithful and just to forgive our sins. And so uh, I think that that would, in a sense, mean that if a person really knows the Lord and they have... Uh, temptation in the area of same-sex attraction and they fall, that doesn't mean they lose their salvation. You can't lose your salvation. If you're genuinely saved, then you won't. Then the, the other problem is, what if they had same-sex attraction and instead of being taught a biblical way to deal with it, but someone says, oh, your pastor says uh, it's okay. Well, who listens to their pastor rather than the Word of God and the Holy Spirit? Uh I think that, uh, that uh, when a pastor says, I'm going to teach you something that's contrary to Scripture, what a person needs to do is find a new pastor. Just, you know. Uh, but it, it is possible that someone might be deceived that way, and I think that the Lord would hold the pastor accountable for that uh, more than the person. But I actually do believe that regardless of what a pastor says, a person will, who knows the Lord will be convicted by the Word of God and by the Holy Spirit and convinced that they need to confess that sin and move on. So uh, I, I think in our culture, and this is something that's really important, our culture has come to say that this is not a sin, and just as, as it says that premarital sex, between heterosexual sex, extramarital sex is okay, uh, listen, there are a lot of sins here. These are not the only sins that are mentioned. And so we just need to know that sin separates us from God. Jesus forgives our sins when we trust in him. And also, he wants to transform our lives so that we don't sin to get more grace, as Romans 6 talks about. And that's where I would put it. Okay? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, we're going to talk next with Miriam. Yeah. I'm Miriam. Um, I'm originally from Christiansburg, Virginia. I'm in, also in my last um, semester at Moody, and I'm an applied linguistics major. Oh boy, that's the. I think that's the hardest major there is. Uh, it's I, certainly not easy. But. Yeah, 
<laughs> That's why. So this semester you're taking a couple of courses with me just to get a relief from those applied linguistics things, right? Right. Less in analysis. Yeah. Well, go ahead with your question, Miriam. Yeah, my question is about Judges 11. Um, when Jephthah vows that if the Lord grants him victory over the Ammonites, he will sacrifice as a burnt offering whatever mm-hmm. comes to meet him from his house. Of course, that ends up being his daughter. Um, and I've heard people say that, I've heard some people say that he did sacrifice his daughter as a burnt offering. I've heard other people say that he just like devoted her to the service of the Lord. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, my question is, did he actually offer as a burnt sacrifice? Mm-hmm. And what does that say about God, how God um, feels about human sacrifice? Because I believe he punished the Canaanites um, like for many sins, including human sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you're right that um, th- there are people who say that he actually carried out a burnt offering. However, uh, when you think about it, uh, how did Jephthah, if he, if he carried out a burnt offering of his daughter, how did he get in the roll call of faith in Hebrews 11? When you think about that, that just doesn't make any sense because it was such a forbidden pagan practice. And it says in uh, Hebrews 11, what more shall I say? Shall I speak of, and it starts mentioning people and includes Jephthah. So he's in the roll call of faith. Other aspect of it, is when it talks about uh, giving someone to the Lord, the, the phrase that's actually used is, uh, the, with the, here's what he says in Judges 11, whatever comes out of the doors of my house to greet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites will belong to the Lord. And then it says, and I will offer it as a burnt offering. And the word and there in Hebrew could very well mean or. It could be translated or. So he says, I will give, uh, will belong to the Lord, a word, that, a phrase that's used of like the priests and the Levites who belong to the Lord, okay? Mm-hmm. It's used in Numbers 8, 14 that way. And or I will sacrifice it and as a burnt offering. So it doesn't necessarily mean that he had to have a burnt offering. It was an either or either offered to the Lord. And then, now this is a tragic thing for Jephthah because he only has one daughter and his daughter is the one that comes out to meet him. And what her response is, which I think is so interesting when you when you look at what she says, um, my father, you have given your word to the Lord, do to me as you have said. And then she says, let me do this one thing, let me wander two months through the mountains with my friends and mourn my virginity. I'm wondering, if she's going to be a burnt offering in two months, I think she's got bigger issues than to mourn about her virginity. And uh, so it says she went and went with her friends, and not that she mourned that she was going to be burnt alive in uh, two months, but rather she mourned her virginity. And then when she came back, he kept the vow he had made about her, and uh, she never knew a man. Uh, and so that means that she remained a virgin. Well, why is this? If you look at Psalm 68, 25, it speaks about the the maidens who are worshiping in the tabernacle, and it says they came out with tambourines just like she did, but the word that's used for maidens there is alamot, 
which is the same word for virgin that's used in Isaiah 7.14. And so it appears that the women who served in the tabernacle or later the temple did so, they were all virgins. So here Jephthah made a decision and he had to give up his one hope of having heirs uh, and she went to serve in the tabernacle. He gave her, she belonged to the Lord just as Numbers 8.14 talks about the priests. So I don't believe he gave a human sacrifice. Instead, he gave his only hope of having an heir through his daughter to the, to the Lord, and that was a great sacrifice, and she served the Lord there in the tabernacle. So you don't have to worry about uh, the judge of Israel committing human sacrifice. So Okay? Good. Thanks. Thanks for that question, Miriam, and thanks for all these questions from Moody students. We're going to be right back with more Moody student questions in just a moment. You're listening to a special Thanksgiving edition, weekend edition of Open Line with Moody Bible Institute's students and me, Michael Rydelnik. We'll be right back. Don't go away. People are always asking about the Jewish people and Jesus. That's why Chosen People Ministries is offering a free booklet called Israel, the Jewish People, and Jesus. It explains God's promises to the Jewish people and what they mean today. You'll see how God has preserved his people throughout history and returned them to their land. It reveals how we can all be part of God's plan to reach the Jewish people today. For a free copy of Israel, the Jewish People, and Jesus, just go to the Open Line website. That's openlineradio.org. Scroll down and you'll see a link that says a gift from Chosen People Ministries. Click on that and you'll be taken to a page where you can sign up for your own free copy of Israel, the Jewish People, and Jesus. Welcome back to Open Line with me, Michael Rydelnik. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Hope you had a great weekend and that it's continuing. And you're having a wonderful time with family and friends and food and uh, just having a joyous time. Hope you're having some time to play some board games. That's always fun on Thanksgiving weekend. And I'm glad you're listening in today. Joining me now uh, for the time that normally would be the FEBC mailbag is not Trisha with the mailbag, but I have several Moody students sitting here in the studio with me. They're the ones asking the questions today. Don't call in because they are the ones asking the questions for the special pre-recorded Turkey Day edition, Turkey Weekend edition of Open Line. And uh, I do want to thank FEBC for partnering with us. I'm really grateful for that. And I want to encourage you to check out Far East Broadcasting Company's podcast called until all have heard with Ed Cannon. It shows how this ministry is reaching the world through radio. It's a remarkable ministry. And all the details for this and more about FEBC's extensive outreach can be found at febc.org. That's febc.org. And now Miriam was here with me last segment, and she was uh, asking a question. And you have another question, right? Yes. Oh, wait, uh, wait. Tell, tell We have new listeners. They just joined us. Tell us your name and where you're from and what your major is. Yeah, I'm Miriam. I'm originally from Christiansburg, Virginia. My major is Applied Linguistics, and I'm asking a question for my friend whose name is Rachel. She's from Lindenhurst, Illinois, and she's a five-year piano major. And she couldn't come this morning. No, she couldn't. So she you're her to. rep. Okay. Yes. Good. So her question is about 2 Samuel 21, um, which takes place during a famine, a three-year famine in Israel. Um and 
Saul had put a lot of Gibeonites to death. So David calls the Gibeonites and delivers the sons of Saul over to them. Mm-hmm. Then they hang the Gibeonite, or they hang the sons of Saul. Mm-hmm. Um, after this, the famine ends, which seems to imply that the Lord approved. Mm-hmm. Um, so her question is, did God approve of their death? Um, and what does this say about generational guilt? Well, the, the presumption we have is that when Saul did this, he did it apart from his sons. And uh, I don't believe that that's the case. Uh, the Gibeonites were not Israelites, but rather a remnant of the Amorites, but they had a, a covenant with them of peace, and Saul broke it. Um, and when Saul, as we see at, at the death of Saul, Jonathan was out to battle with him. It's not like Saul did things on his own. And so it appears to me that uh, Saul uh, uh, had his sons participate in what they had done, and as a consequence, they, along with, and it was, of course, very painful to Saul, they also uh, had to face justice. So the presumption is that they were participatory in that. Okay? Okay. Mm-hmm. Good. We're going to move on to Brian. Why don't you tell us about yourself? Hey, good morning, Dr. Adelnick. My name's Brian. I live in beautiful, historic Lamont, Illinois. I'm in the grad school. And this is my very last uh, class ever. You're, uh, cla- you're with me this semester? Yes, yes. Oh, wow. Jewish, uh, Jewish history. Wow. I'm, I'm glad you're in there. Oh, Thank you. a great class. Mm-hmm. So my question is, um, you know, I'm a dispensationalist, but I have a lot of friends who are into covenant theology. And um, I had some questions about the different covenants. You know, I, I assumed like the covenant theology would be like the Abrahamic, uh, Davidic covenant, can you explain that the actual covenants in covenant theology? <laughs> and then I had a little bit of a follow-up. Has replacement theology actually led to uh, anti-Semitism in the church? Okay. Well, uh, you know, covenant theology, the word covenant is a great biblical word. But when covenant theology is speaking about covenants, they're, they're talking about two covenants that are not found in the Bible. What they're talking about is not you know, the Noahic covenant or the Abrahamic or the Davidic covenant, those are the covenants that we find in Genesis 9 or Genesis 12 or 15, 17, that one, 22, that's the Abrahamic, or they're not talking about the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. What they're talking about is a covenant of works that God made a covenant with humanity that they were supposed to obey him And I don't see that anywhere mentioned in Scripture. And then, of course, after they fell, then a covenant of grace, and that the theme of the Bible from Genesis 3 onward becomes soteriology, or the salvation that God provides for humanity. Uh, And so that's the covenant that they're referring to. Those are the covenants. They're not actually biblical covenants. They're conjectured covenants uh, by theologians. And uh, I don't think it's untrue that God expected people to obey him. That's why he gave them the guidelines in the garden. And it's not untrue that God promises to provide grace, but in terms of covenants, we can't find those in the Bible. Uh, as for this idea of identity theft of Israel, that the church has superseded Israel, I don't believe that, well, which came first, 
was it identity theft that led to the anti-Semitism of the church? Or did anti-Semitism lead to supersessionism or this idea that the church has replaced Israel? I don't know. I just look at the early church fathers and they seem to have a very, very hostile view of the Jewish people. And they could not conceive that even though Israel had rebelled, that God would be faithful regardless and bring Israel back around. And so as a result, uh, and also they, they could not conceive that God had made a national choice of Israel and they were also to be faithful to him, but it was a national choice and that there was a faithful remnant. They could not conceive of that. And so they said when Israel failed, uh, that God take, had took that promise away, the chosenness, and gave it to the church. And so was it driven by anti-Semitism? Maybe. Did it cause anti-Semitism? Maybe. But here's why I want to say this. There are many godly people today who hold to a replacement theology. Nevertheless, they're not anti-Semitic. They don't hate Jewish people. And they may not believe that God's going to fulfill the national promises to Israel, but they don't believe that Jewish people should be persecuted. They don't hold any kind of uh, hatred towards the Jewish people. And so we have to be really careful not to equate uh, this with anti-Semitism, this idea of replacement theology. On the other hand, there are people who want to be anti-Semitic, and they will, and they're believers, and they will justify it using replacement theology. That's no good. God, even if you're a replacement, God would never want us to hate any people, particularly the Jewish people. So, okay, great, thanks. Yeah, sure. And Kristen, you're up. Go ahead, introduce yourself for us. Hi, uh, my name is Kristen, and I am in my last semester as well, and I am a TESOL major. And what is TESOL? TESOL is uh, teaching English as a second language. And, and is that your exclusive major or are you – what else are you? Interdisciplinary of yeah. old credits basically. Yeah, lots of, lots of other credits and that's why you're in my class, right? That's it. Yep. And uh, where I'm from, I am um, was born in Kenya but now I'm in uh, Michigan. But yeah. I had a verse about – I mean I had a question about uh, Hebrews 13. Okay. Um, so in verses 9 to 10, uh, verse 10 seems just kind of stuck on there, mm -hmm. and I'm not sure, exactly sure how it relates. Uh, it's like, do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. And then it says just kind mm -hmm. of, it sounds awkward, mm -hmm. um, out of place. It says, we have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. So is that those who minister at the tabernacle, are they Christians? Are they the Levites? Um, why, why can't they eat? Mm -hmm. Why is okay. it there? Uh, well, it's, it's linked. Uh, it is good for the heart to be established by grace and not by foods. That's true, since those involved with them have not benefited. So uh, I think that's, that's the idea that people were, were teaching that it was food that uh, is necessary to receive the grace of God. And it says, no, we're going to be strengthened by grace and not particular foods. Then it says, we have an altar from which those who serve in the tabernacle, meaning priests who do not yet, and Levites who do not yet know the Lord Jesus, 
they have no right to eat, meaning uh, we have an altar from which they don't have a right to eat. In fact, this grace that we have, being nurtured by that grace, they don't get the right to have it because they, uh, it's not actually talking about physical eating, but they don't have a right to that grace that we have because they haven't trusted in Jesus yet. So they're the ones emphasizing you've got to have the sacrifices, you've got to eat this food, this is how we know God, uh, this is the fellowship meal. No, no, no. Uh, that's not the case for them. They don't have a right to eat of what we have, which is the grace of God. Okay? I think that's the connection. Yeah. By the way, isn't that amazing? That, and some people want to make a big deal of this and say that we receive grace through the Lord's Supper. I think we receive God's enablement and kindness through all kinds of means, but I, I think the primary message of the Lord's table is that it is a memorial remembrance, which is such a crucial idea for uh, the whole Bible, the Jewish Bible, Hebrew Bible, was the idea of remember the Exodus, remember the Exodus, remember the Exodus, so to look forward to the future. And now as followers of Jesus, we remember Jesus was our Passover lamb and was raised again. We remember, we remember looking forward to his return. And so uh, it was a memorial meal. Uh, and, but that, that strengthens us and encourages us when, when we remember. So, uh, but it's just saying they don't have a right to the grace uh, that we receive that nurtures us because they don't know the Lord. Boy, wouldn't it be great to uh, know the Lord uh, if you're listening and you would like to be strengthened by God? The way to do that is to trust in Jesus, that he died for us and rose again. And then we have the grace of God in our lives. That's phenomenal. We're going to be right back with more Moody Student questions right here on Open Line with Michael Rydelnik. Be right back. Don't go away. Welcome back to Open Line. I'm Michael Radelnik. So grateful for you joining me on this Thanksgiving weekend special edition of Open Line with Moody Bible Institute students. We're pre-recorded, so don't call, but I'm so grateful these students have come in and they are asking their questions. Before we get to the next question, I want to remind us all that this is just such a great privilege that God has given me that I get to interact with people all the time and we become friends by the radio. And it's such a uh, close relationship that we have. I guess we drive in cars together and we, uh, I'm there while you're doing housework and all the different things people have told me that they do while listening to Open Line so that when we finally meet, they're like, oh, you're Michael. We're like old friends. I love that. And I appreciate all those people who sit around the radio kitchen table with me. Uh, thank you on this Thanksgiving weekend for giving me that privilege of being in your homes and in your cars to do that with you. I'm also grateful for our kitchen table partners. I am especially grateful because they not only listen, but they give monthly so I can answer questions weekly right here on Moody Radio. So thank you so much for choosing to become a kitchen table partner. I love to say thank you for doing that by sending every other week a special audio Bible study prepared exclusively for our kitchen table partners. And if you would like to become a kitchen table partner and give monthly, what you can do is go to 888-644-7122 or go to our website, openlineradio.org, and you can sign up to be a kitchen table partner. And for those of you who have done so, thank you so much. And those of you who are 
uh, wanting to do so and still planning it. Thank you for even considering it, and I hope that uh, you will choose to do that. And we're going to go right back to the, the questions now. And uh, Josh, why don't you introduce yourself? My, my name is Joshua Zuko. I'm from Chicago, Illinois here, and I'm a Jewish studies and biblical languages major. Okay. My question is with John 9.31. Uh, it says that we know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone who is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Uh, how would you explain that to somebody? Does God actually hear those who do not do his will or those who are not um, have a relationship with Messiah Yeshua? Uh, let's, well, let's look at this. Uh, they ridiculed him. You're that man's disciple, but we're Moses' disciples. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but this man, we don't know where he's from. This is an amazing thing, the man told them. You don't know where he is from, yet he opened my eyes. Now, who's speaking? A theologian? Is it Jesus? It's this man's impression. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Now, I think what he's saying is, look, Jesus did a miracle. He, I was born blind, and he opened my eyes. That's not your ordinary run-of-the-mill sinner. This is a man that they were, the leadership of the Jewish people at this point were accusing Jesus of being a sinner, a Sabbath breaker, because he did this miracle on the Sabbath. And yet, uh, it, it appears that God would not have honored Jesus if he were just a flagrant Sabbath breaker and a, a disobedient person. That's what he's saying. Uh, I don't think he's saying that God doesn't hear the prayers or even care about people who are sinners. Otherwise, he would never even be able to receive us when we pray in, in the name of Jesus to trust in Jesus. And so, but what it's saying is, look, Jesus did a miracle. This could not have happened if he was the sinner that you were describing him as. And and so he's establishing the righteousness of Jesus as a holy man. Uh, and and of course, that's why he went. Uh, to Jesus, or Jesus came to him and healed him. What a miracle when you think about it, uh, about being the man born blind, because, of course, his disciples wanted to know who sinned, this man or, or his parents and that whole thing. But the, the point of it is that when there's someone who is born blind, there's nothing you can do. Uh, it, the only way that they can, it's not like they can do something and the person gets their sight back, even today medically. A person born blind, if they're missing stuff, you know, they just, they can't see. But Jesus restored his sight, gave him sight. Uh, that's, that's supernatural. Uh, and it says in Isaiah 35 that the Messiah will open the eyes of the blind. Mm. And so that's a distinctive messianic miracle here that the Messiah performed. It revealed who he is. And it also, you know, I love this passage because it reveals that there are some people who think they can see, but spiritually they're blind. And here's this man who was physically blind, but he really saw, he knew who Jesus was. Uh, so, okay. anyway, very cool. Yeah. Okay, we're back to Kat. Kat was here earlier, so you have to reintroduce yourself. You have a question for a friend, right? Yes. So, I'm Kat. I grew up in Bowie, Maryland. I'm a sophomore, and I am majoring in Jewish studies. Okay. Um, so the question that I have is, how did different first century Jewish sects understand heaven or hell in the afterlife? I think mostly we were talking about hell when we were trying to figure out mm -hmm. what their thoughts were. Well, 
to start with, there were the Sadducees, and they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They, as far as I can tell, the Sadducees believed that when you, you died, you were done, that they didn't have a sense of eternality, uh, that we are immortal beings, no matter, you know, every person, whether they know the Lord or not, we're all immortal. Uh, what C.S. Lewis said is that we're either immortal wretches, immortal horrors, or immortal glories. Uh, whether we are resurrected, we're glories, uh, or if we're resurrected to separation from God, eternal horrors. That's, so they didn't have that sense. That's why the Lord Jesus answered them by saying, I am the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, because they only believed in the Pentateuch, in the Torah, uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and there wasn't a clear statement of resurrection. And so the Lord Jesus said, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Uh, the other sect of the Pharisees, they believed in the prophets and they believed in the Psalms. And the Psalms seemed to indicate that there was hope beyond the grave. And uh, for example, in, in Psalm 16, you won't abandon my soul to Sheol. It's a messianic prophecy, but still. And then also in Isaiah, uh, and Daniel, it spoke of the resurrection from the dead. Uh, in Daniel 12, it speaks of the resurrection, that there's going to be a great resurrection. And I believe in Isaiah 26, it speaks of that as well. And so as a result, the Pharisees who believed both uh, in the Torah and the Psalms and the, and the prophets, because of that, they believed in a resurrection. And then all the other sects were either side with the Sadducees or siding with the Pharisees. And of course, we know when Paul was on trial, what did he say? I'm a Pharisee and I am on trial for the hope of the resurrection because the resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits of all the resurrections that will take place. And so uh, those were the two main ideas of uh, either life ending uh, in the grave or the hope of resurrection forever. So anyway... Thanks for that great question. Thanks to the program for the week. Thanks for everyone who listened. Thank you for always being so encouraging. And also, uh, thanks for these students for coming in and asking their questions. I'm grateful for Open Lines producer, Trisha, who put this whole thing together. Thank you so much, Trish. Remember, keep in touch with us during the week by going to openlineradio.org. It's got links to past programs, a form for your questions, a link to find us on Facebook. You can also check out our current resource and how to become a kitchen table partner. Hope the rest of your Thanksgiving weekend is great. Keep reading the Bible. We'll talk about it next week. Open Line is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. <laughs>